Hi there, it's Richard from the 10 Adventures podcast, and you're in for a treat this week. I'm on hiatus exploring Asia and the Middle East, and this means you get to listen to one of our favorite podcasts from our first hundred episodes. I hope you enjoy it. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. This episode is incredible. We're talking with Charles Dement about his journey on the Appalachian Trail. He lost over 100 pounds, found love, and had a life-changing experience that is sure to inspire you. Joining me for this episode is Karen, a colleague here at 10 Adventures, who is also a world explorer and a doctor. Hello. Hello. Karen, how's it going? Uh, Pretty good. Can't complain. Uh, We have a really interesting guest today. We're going to learn about one of the epic trails and also about weight loss. And you've done some pretty big trips. Did you find you lost a lot of weight on, you know, your big bike trips you've done or any of your big hikes? Not on any of the big bike trips. The only time I may have lost some weight was uh, in Nepal, one mainly because um, of altitude. Like it just devastated my appetite. I thought you were going to say something else there. (laughs) no Uh, it's funny I did a big through hike in 2009 and I thought I was going to lose a ton of weight and I came back to Canada I'd lost two pounds after basically hiking every day for a month so I was really really let down luckily today we're going to hear from Charles Dement who has a great story about uh, the Appalachian Trail and and his hike where he had a whole bunch of crazy stuff going on as well as losing some weight. Now, Charles is an aspiring writer. He's currently working on a book about his through hike, and he also has some fiction stories in mind that he's going to work on as well. Uh, He describes hiking the AT as being a revelation for him, and it's the first of what he hopes to be many other long-distance trails. He's currently based in Arkansas, but moving up to Rhode Island soon, where he's going to live with his girlfriend, who he met on the trail the second day, and they hike the rest of the trail together. Right now, he's working a soul-crushing office job and yearning for his next trip. Hello, Charles. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? I'm great, thanks. To start off, why can you tell people what the Appalachian Trail is? For a lot of people who maybe don't know what it is. So uh, the Appalachian Trail is a roughly 2,200-mile tra- uh, foot traffic-only uh, hiking trail that spans 14 states, uh, pretty much up the spine of the Appalachian Mountains. It uh, spans 14 states going from Georgia to Maine. It was uh, first thought of in the 1930s, came into fruition and then I believe it was the late 40s when someone first decided, hey, I'm going to hike this entire thing in one go. And then the through hike was born, at least on the AT. And it has a very unique subculture associated with it. I think through hiking as a whole does, but the AT especially just has its own, like I said, subculture. You know, it's just, I don't think there's anything quite like it. And you just. And did you hike the whole Appalachian Trail or just part of it? I hiked all of it in about, and I went uh, Nobo or northbound. So I started in Georgia at Springer Mountain, and I hiked all the way up to uh, Mount Katahdin, Maine. It took me about five and a half months. 
And is northbound the typical way that people hike it? Is that what most people tend to do? Yes, most people do hike it northbound. Others can go southbound, and they actually have something called a flip-flop, where you might start at the north, or you might start at the south, and you go to the midway point. So you'd hike from Georgia to uh, the midway point at the ATC headquarters, and then you would go up to Katahdin and hike down again, or any combination of that. And they're kind of leaning towards that these days to encourage people to do that because there are a lot less people hiking northbound, so it's less crowded and it's less harmful to the, the trail, you know, the ecosystem surrounding the trail. So they do encourage So that. it kind of spreads people yes. out then. Yes. And what made you decide to hike the Appalachian Trail? Well, that's a funny and kind of sad story, depending on how you look at it. So back in 2015, I was working a pretty decent job, you know, pay-wise, but it was just, the monotony was just... I can't explain it. I don't like monotony. I like to switch things up. So the job was easy, but you know, I was overweight. I was depressed. I was drinking a little too much to be honest. And one night, you know, Friday night, I was just sitting in my recliner, probably had a few too many bourbons. And I just saw something on the internet alluding to the Appalachian trail. And I was like 2000 miles and everyone, someone walks it and it goes I was like, that can't be right. So I started looking at it a little more and at one point I fell asleep and I woke up and I kept thinking about it. I was like, what is this? So I looked into it and I decided within, you know, 10 minutes of being awake that I'm going to do this. This is incredible. This is what I need. So I started, I bought, I bought a whole bunch of gear and I'd never spent a single night outside before. I bought a bunch of gear that I didn't need. It's too heavy. My pack probably weighed 50 to 60 pounds. I had like four days worth of food for like just, just a little trial run to test my gear and I made it eight miles before we set up camp. And then I just went back that we got on a service road and left. And I was just, I was pretty discouraged. I was thinking, I don't know if I can make it because eight miles almost killed me. This is 2000. And I kind of put on the back burner, but it was always in there. And then one day in 2018, we were on a conference call and uh, my boss's boss said, well, we're going to shut this store down and uh, you know, you'll get a severance that the managers get a severance. And I just smiled, got one on my face because I just realized this is it. I'm going to hike the AT now. So I was unemployed for uh, the store closed in uh, 18 at, in July. And I was on unemployment for a while. And then I decided to just kind of live off my savings. I sold almost all my things, got the severance, cashed out my 401k and headed to Springer. And on March 31st is when I started. So you hadn't had a lot of experience um, backpacking before you started then? Uh, no, my my second night to ever sleep outside, other than maybe like in the backyard as a kid or something in like a pillow fort. I don't remember if I'd done that or not, but my second night to ever sleep outside was my first night on the AT. Oh, wow. So did you have to do a lot of planning then before you left? I overplanned. And, you know, we were talking about me working on a book. One of the things I really want to drive through in that book is a lot of people overplan. The first three lines, I say, this is all you need to successfully hike the Appalachian Trail. And that's get something to sleep in and on, get enough food to go from Springer Mountain to Neil Gap, your first resupply, get a little bit of money, and then walk north until you see a big wooden sign that says Katahdin. It's a little more complicated than that, but I overplanned and overanalyzed and overread way too much. The basics of a through hike is just walking. It doesn't have to be this huge thing. It's not. That's the fact that it's so alluring to so many people is it's not a big thing. It's just, just a walk in the woods, to quote Mr. Bryson. Give me some ideas of things that you feel like you overplanned. Uh, gear. Like what kind of things? Yeah, it was gear. 
mostly because people just go crazy, you know, looking at gear and it's important to find something that works. And I do recommend someone get something and trying it out, but I can really only speak for myself, but just things that I've noticed are people think that you have to have the $1,200 tent and you have to have these clothes. You know, I had these expensive clothes that I bought and I went all out on like my sleeping gear. You should just get what you can afford reasonably. I mean, I'm not saying to go get everything at like a dollar store, but I got too skinny for my shirts and they were like chafing me. And instead of buying like another $65 shirt from an outfitter, I just got a athletic shirt from Walmart for $8 and uh, that used that the rest of the trail. It just, I kept thinking that I would need this and this and this, but I didn't really. There were so many things I brought that I just didn't need. So that's probably what I'd say when people overanalyze, it's for their gear and logistics as well, I'd say. Which gear do you feel like it was worthwhile investing in, in retrospect? I'd say the big three are the thing, the only things you really need to spend the most money on. And you just spend as much as you're comfortable doing. And that's going to be your pack, your tent or hammock in my case, because I used a hammock and then your sleeping bag mm -hmm. or quilt in my case. So you want to try to get those as light, as comfortable as possible. Everything else is kind of just a bonus. You know, like I said, with the shirts, you can just go to a cheap store and get a shirt. It's going to be fine. Maybe socks would be the only clothes I'd say to go out on if you're going to get some nice wool socks, but everything else. Yeah. Were you worried about weight then a lot? Were you ultralight? No, I wasn't ultralight. I think ultralight, depending on who you ask, is really considered sub, I don't know, 20. I was probably, when I first started, I ended up getting a new pack halfway through the trail. Mine had just... I bought it in 2015 when I first had my revelation and packs have come a long way apparently in that time since from 2015 to 19. So about in Virginia, I got a new pack and my base weight was probably with, you know, without food and water, it was probably 20 pounds, 19, 20 pounds. So I wasn't really trying to, I don't like the whole go as light as possible to where you're just eating cold soaked couscous on a, a piece of cardboard that night. I've read, I've read a lot of people do that. Well, not the cardboard part. Yeah, or it's like this little uh, thing, you know, like this little thermarest pad. I actually had one as a backup because in the Smokies, I, you can't hammock. You have to stay in the shelter unless it's filled up. Then you can hammock or tent. It's not very comfortable at all. So I think there's a healthy balance between being too heavy and just being miserably uncomfortable. But for some people, the ultralight life, that's that's what they like. And, you know, that's they're happy doing that. They like to get as light as they can go and kind of... It's almost like a survival thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just definitely not my cup of tea. And I don't rec I recommend some comfort because the, your biggest battle on the trail is going to be the, the mental battle. And if you can have like a nice place to sleep or something nice to eat after a long day, it really goes a long way. Yeah. So tell us what your typical day on the trail is like. So for me, it may be a little different than most because as I mentioned in my article, I kind of started accidentally intermittently fasting throughout the trip. So I'd wake up in the morning, usually get woken up by one of my uh, trail party members. They'd come knock on my hammock bug shield and they'd wake me up because they get up to cook breakfast and stuff. Not me though. I would just kind of hang out. And then while they were eating breakfast, I would pack up and get ready to go. And at first they were so much faster than me. And I was going so slow because my knees hurt so bad. And, you know, I was like 350 pounds hiking on the trail and I would just try to leave before them so I could maintain a pace with them because I was worried I was going to get left, which is something you shouldn't do on the trail. You should just hike at your own pace because you can hurt yourself. So I would wake up and pack up and I would start hiking. 
Um, I'd usually the first hour and a half or maybe two, I would usually just kind of listen to the sound as the morning, you know, the birds, the nature, you know, you know, that kind of morning in the woods. It's like a different Aurora, I guess, around you in the morning times, you might have some sun coming in. So I was just kind of reflecting during that time I'd walked and then I'd hike, I'd listen to a podcast or audio book or uh, some music about noon. I might pull over and have a, you know, 30 minute rest might have a snack in the early parts, probably not. And then it was hike until camp. And then we would usually, when we get to camp, which is my favorite part of the day uh, or the shelter, I would uh, have a snack, then eat some of my snacks in my food bag. Then we'd set up camp, hang out a little bit. Then it'd be dinner time. And then hikers go to bed early on the AT. They they call 9 PM hiker midnight. So we'd go to bed about like right as the sun started setting, or at least I would. And, uh, it's crazy how fast you go to sleep after, you know, you've hiked 15 or 20 miles a day. And then that'd be about it. Unless we were going into town, that was just my day. You know, you'd meet new people a lot. The best part is someone you met like back in Georgia, you're just walking along and you just see that person you met 400 miles ago. I thought you'd never see him again. They're just sitting on a rock eating summer sausage just off the, not even cutting it, just eating a foot long piece of meat on a rock. And you're like, Hey, uh, that happened a lot, and that was always that's probably my favorite experience socially is just seeing somebody from hundreds of miles ago. So, did you tend to hike with people, or did you spend a lot of time hiking on your own and meeting up with people at different locations? I'd say for the most part, that's how it goes for a lot of people. You don't really, at least for my group, we wouldn't hike like in a line very much. It would happen sometimes, but we usually had our different paces. So we would all just kind of just pass each other throughout the day. And then we might all stop somewhere at lunch. If I meet, you know, Lifesaver or sister who are two members of my trail family on a rock, you know, I'd be like, oh, I will hang out for a little bit. But usually we would all meet up at the end of the day at the shelter. We'd have a predetermined spot where we'd say we're going to try to get to today. And it'd usually be a shelter. And that's where we'd meet up at the end of the day. So in the beginning, I'd see them in the morning. And I might see them in the day, but I usually wouldn't see them till the end of the day because they were so much faster. They would already be sitting there getting ready for dinner when I just came trotting up. But I did get pretty quick uh, later on. I got, I was a pretty fast hiker after that, after I shed some pounds. I guess after six months of training, you uh, get a lot better. You see yourself improve. Definitely. At first, I didn't think I would ever do a 20 mile day. And I did. I still don't like to do 20 mile days. We averaged about 15 or so. 15 was my comfort spot. I didn't like to push miles like a lot of people do. I just like to just kind of enjoy it, you know, not getting too much of a hurry. But we had a few days, especially towards the end, where we, we hiked some big miles. We did the 100 mile wilderness really fast. I think we had a couple of, we had like a 27 mile day in there and maybe a 28 after that. It was that was when we start. That's when we started hiking a lot. But anything past twenty for me, regardless of the shape I'm in, I just I'm not a big fan. Yeah, you mentioned that at the beginning of your hike, you were fasting for a big part of the day. Well, why did you decide to do that, or was that a decision? It really wasn't a decision. You know, with intermittent fasting, that's something I would do in the past for weight loss, and just because. I don't know. I just felt kind of better. So what I would do is I would only pretty much eat one meal a day. So I would just have, it was usually dinner. So I would just go all day without eating. And then about six o'clock when I was home from work, I would uh, just have dinner. And the uh, rationale for me was I could have a pretty big meal if you're only eating one meal a day. And when I got on the trail, I just kind of fell into that on accident, you know, because breakfast would become, I'm not very hungry. So I'll just eat lunch. And then 
lunchtime would roll around and I'm hot and I'm tired and thirsty. If I'm doing active things, I'm usually not very hungry. And then that turned into really just only eating once a day. Like I said, I would eat my snacks when I first got to camp and then I would set up camp and then I would eat dinner. And that just turned into one meal a day on accident. And I just kind of went with it because I was like, man, I am shedding the weight, you know, like a lot. How much weight did you lose? I lost uh, a total of 112 pounds. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's a lot. I know. It was, I've put like 30 back on because I'm going to blame the, I'm going to blame the pandemic on that one. But yeah, it was a lot. And I could, you don't really notice it too much when it's happening, I guess, but people would make remarks and I would, I would just be like, I'm still pretty tubby. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep, you know, riding this one meal a day train. But that was silly of me because I was going to lose weight regardless. I was burning like almost 10,000 calories a day based on someone my size. You know, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm six foot six. So my maintenance is like a little over 3000 calories a day. So as long as I was burning that much, I could have eaten whatever I wanted. I just kind of got an unhealthy obsession with losing weight. Did it affect your performance at all by doing that? I think so. I was a little more tired. I was definitely malnourished because, and this lasted for months after the trail, if I was to stand up, not even quickly, just stand up, I would have like for two or three seconds, I would be dizzy. And I I had some issues with my hair thinning on top. That's just now starting to uh, come back. And I got this weird, like in the back of my head, I was getting a haircut in Virginia and the stylist was cutting my hair and she kind of gasped and said, I didn't do that. And I was like, what did what? And she's like this. And she showed me just a bald spot, like about the size of a nickel on the back bottom of my head. And I felt it. And it was just baby smooth. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you did that. I don't know what's going on. And I kind of just ignored it. And it had the symptoms of this type of alopecia that I read can be caused by uh, just stress and I think my eating habits, you know, exasperated that and made it worse. Yeah. Charles, I was really interested about uh, how the weight loss impacted your performance on the trail. And I talked to a lot of people that have a lot of knee pain or hip pain. Your story was kind of inspirational how, you know, the weight loss really transformed that. Can you maybe tell everyone a little bit what you were dealing with at the start and how it got better? Yes, that was probably the best part because I played football from third grade until my sophomore year of college. And when I was in uh, ninth grade, so about 14, I had knee surgery and I'd always thought that my knees were bad just because of playing sports, but they weren't that bad. And when I started hiking the trail, my knees, it was the worst pain I've ever had in my knees, you know, not my life, but it was the descents. So if I'm walking down, it was like stabbing pain in both knees. And it used to just be my right one that would hurt. But I mean, I remember coming down Blood Mountain and Neil Gap. It was like four days into the trail and I'm thinking I'm going to have to quit because it's that bad. You know, I tried walking backwards and I would just, I at one point I sat and I just like scooted down and I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. But at one point in the, I got some knee braces and there was one point in the Smokies where we were sitting on one of these, there's a bunch of like balds and knobs and stuff up in the Smokies. It was on one of those. And I was sitting there and my, these knee braces would get sweaty and they would start chafing really badly. So when I'd sit on a rock, I would take them off and let them kind of let my knees dry out a little bit. Well, I was standing up and just I'd slapped them on a rock and they had stuck there because they were so drenched with sweat. And I was walking around. I was like, man, my knees don't really hurt too bad. And I was like, I'll try this. We'll see. I mean, we're about to go down a mountain. We'll see what's going on. And I started doing it. I was just like, my knees do not hurt anymore. Like, what is going on? And 
I've just kind of put two and two together. I was like, oh, it's because I've lost like, you know, 45 pounds. So I threw the, uh, I threw those knee braces away because it would have been cruel to put them in a hiker box. So I just, I just threw them away and I never had the knee braces again. And my knees, I would have a little twang every once in a while, if it was an especially long day or especially, but yeah, knee pain was gone. I mean, it went from an everyday thing, just existing. My knees would hurt to being just like a little, let's take some ibuprofen. We'll be fine. And that, I mean, that was remarkable to me. Cause you know, I thought I'm just going to be, I'm going to be that guy in age 40 who has, you know, the knee replacement surgery. And so far they're still hopping along just fine. So once you stopped fasting and you started eating more regularly, was your quality of food changing at that time or, or what kind what were you eating? Well, the hiker diet is not known for its, uh, at least most, the, a typical one isn't known. My typical resupply was potato chips, peanuts, which peanuts would be a good one. Little candy bars. I would bring cheese a lot, which surprisingly lasts for a while. And if you put it in the middle of your pack, it stays fairly cool. At one point I had a stick of butter I brought with me when it was a little colder. Uh, dinners would be, I would either get a box of Annie's mac and cheese and a little single serving slice of Spam. And I would cook the mac and cheese and just cut the spam up and put it in there. I would do, uh, if I could find them, dehydrated red beans and rice was a, a big one. Stovetop stuffing I did one, a few times in the beginning, and it was pretty good, but one day it just hit me wrong, and I just never wanted again on the trail. But mostly, what my resupplies were were snacks and then dinners. I didn't do breakfasts or lunches, and then I took a, a multivitamin very briefly, which I should have been doing that the entire trail because I think that was my... I think I would have fared a lot better had I had a multivitamin, even at me doing the intermittent fasting. And had you planned your meals ahead of time and sent yourself your resupplies? No, and I don't recommend doing that. That's something I, I try to tell people. In, unless you have like a dietary restriction, maybe someone's a vegan, they might want to do mail drops because it can be hard because sometimes you're resupplying at a gas station. So it can be really hard to find the things you need. If you don't have any kind of restrictions, I don't recommend the mail drops because a lot of times you might get a whole bunch of something to send yourself that you think's good, but you know, it's day 140, wherever. And you're just like, I am tired of this meal, but I've got 60 more of them queued up to come down the line. You never know what you're going to like see or get in the hankering for, you know, sometimes I'd be like, I hate the restaurant subway. Do not like, I think all their sandwiches taste the same. But every once in a while on the trail, you know, I'd be two day, two or three days out of town. I'd be like, man, I'm going to get a foot long. I'm going to put roast beef on it, onions. You never know what you're going to want, I, I guess is what I'm saying. So I don't recommend the mail drop unless you need it. And it's just kind of trouble, too, having to deal with, like, the mailing things. I don't recommend it. I know people who did it, and they liked it just fine. But if I was just telling an average person like me, I'd say just buy food at the grocery store or whatever. For people thinking about doing the AT, how often are you going through towns or able to resupply? Is it like the Pacific Crest Trail where you have some pretty long time out, or is it more regular that you can get food? It's way more regular. You're, I would say at least, you'll have access to town. I mean, a lot of times the trail goes through town. So we went through several towns where Main Street was the AT. It's not like the PCT. That's actually, that's the trail I want to do next. I'm a little concerned about doing that one because... On the AT, I'm trying to think of how many days in between stops. I mean, maybe at the most five. And that's not even saying, like, 
there'll be points to where you could get like a 10 or 20 minute ride into a town until you get up into it like Maine. You're very close to everything. I'd say maybe four to five days at most, it would be our resupplies. Sometimes we would choose to do a longer resupply on, on purpose and we'd go like six or seven days. But if you want to, you could easily, I'd say every two or three days, find a place to resupply. So that would mean it would limit how much you're carrying and how heavy your pack is too, then if you're resupplying more frequently. Yes. A thing that I like to do was, and a lot of people do is if you go from town into the trail, you can bring something like from a restaurant. Like I was talking about subway earlier, you know, I would bring a a couple of footlongs in my pack and take them to camp that night. And that stuff's heavy. But if you just take it to camp and eat it, you're golden, you know, and you don't have to worry about getting something light. Um, if you, so that's something that I recommend people doing for their diet. If they want to, uh, a lot of people don't bring like an apple would be kind of heavy, you know, in your pack and it's kind of bulky. But if you wanted to bring like some fresh fruit or even like a salad with you that first day on trail after town and eat it for dinner or lunch, you could do that just fine. You know, it's just extra weight for a few miles. And I did that a lot. I wish I would have done that more with healthier options. I would have fared a lot better. I think I, I made it needlessly hard on myself with my diet choices. And besides resupplying when you were in town, are there other things that a town day entailed? Yes. Town days are the best days on the trail, at least for me, especially if you're taking a zero. And a zero day is a day, for anyone who doesn't know, where you hike zero miles. And there's also a Nero where you hike near zero miles. Now, what constitutes a Nero is up for debate. I considered anything under 10 miles is a Nero. But there's graffiti along the trail that say, like, anything below 30 miles is a Nero, which is said tongue-in-cheek, I hope. But, uh, but yeah, so you have what, are, what we call uh, town chores. So when you get into town, your main things are going to be your resupply. So you want to resupply and laundry, and you want to do your laundry. So a lot of hotels you'll stay in will have laundry. Sometimes it's included. Sometimes you pay for it. Others don't. You have to go to a laundromat. Uh, what we try to do on a, we like to make it to where we were hiking into town and we get up early and kind of get there mid afternoon, get all of our town chores done. And then that next day, full zero. And we don't have anything to do except for just lounge around and just do whatever, but laundry. And then for others who do the mail drops, it'd be laundry, resupply, go to the post office Sometimes you want to get some new gear. Uh, I went through like 10 trekking poles. So my frequent town chore for me would be going to get some more trekking poles that I've broken. And how often did you take zero days? Did you plan them out? Yes, we plan them. I recommend at least one a week. Some people would go longer. Would typically go once a week. I, I would start, there were, where there'd be times where we'd go like 10, we'd be like 10 days on trail where we'd go to town, but we just went in there, resupplied, and then got out. We didn't even, you know, stay anywhere. And those started to get taxing. So someone like me, they're expensive, but if you have a group, it's not as expensive to stay in a hotel, but it's, it still costs more than, you know, just sleeping in the shelter for free. But I recommend once a week. That's, for, for me personally, that's what was best for me mentally and physically. You know, just a day to where you could, re- and you can take zeros also uh, on trail. We just, I don't think we ever did. But if you had like a really nice camp spot, maybe with a swimming spot or a cool shelter, you could take a zero there too. I know people who did, but we typically took our zeros in a hotel or hostel. I didn't realize there were shelters on the trail. Yes, there's a a bunch. I used to know the number. There's there's a lot. I mean, you can pretty much stay at a shelter 
I mean, there's usually a shelter within it, 10 miles of each other along the whole, whole trail. They were built as the AT was being built. So a lot of them are like from the thirties and they were built by the, uh, it's like the CCC. It was this workforce that was set up and it gave people jobs during the depression and they built those shelters and then, you know, also built the trail. But yeah, they're everywhere. And there's, a, there's all kinds of different ones. There's lean twos, which, you know, it's just an open face shed. Some upper deckers, there's one that was like three stories. It had like a loft on the second floor. There's good ones and bad ones. There's one outside of Damascus that's like, I have a picture of myself in front of it. And I'm like, the top of the door goes like to here on me. And I just, it's kind of slanted too. I was like, I don't know who would stay in here because it's just tiny. I think if I slept in there, no one else could fit. And it looked like it was about to blow over. So you got stuff like that. And then places like Massachusetts, like almost all the shelters there are phenomenal and have like little bunks. They have like little raised platforms for you to put your stuff on. There's endless variations of the shelters on the AT. So what was your favorite part of the trail? I would have to say New England, especially Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. I just love that part of the country. And I'm really glad to be moving kind of close up there soon. But if I just had like, if I could just pick anywhere to live and it'd be a cabin in rural Maine, the trail's really nice. You're walking through the White Mountains. When you leave Virginia, you kind of leave the mountains for a bit through West Virginia and Maryland. It's a nice change up because you're finally glad to be done with Virginia because it's so many, it's like such, it's the the biggest state in the trail that you will go through. But then New York, New Jersey are nice. Pennsylvania is something else. It kind of has a reputation on the trail that a lot of people don't like it. They call it Rocksylvania because it's filled with rocks on the trail. And there's not too many views. I don't want to make fun of Pennsylvania too much. It was fine. But just to be back in like real mountains when you got up into like Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, it was something else. Because I'd kind of started losing steam, especially in Pennsylvania. That's where I was probably at my lowest mentally. So it kind of really picked me up to be back in those mountains and, you know, until I realized I had to climb them. And that's where all the, there's a bunch of 4,000 footers, but it's still nice. Very beautiful. Probably the most beautiful part of the trail, in my opinion. And you were talking earlier about the trail having a certain kind of culture that was quite distinct. Um, tell us a bit more about that. The AT subculture is something else. We have our own jargon. So there's, and you pick it up fast, but it's, I would have to say for someone who didn't know anything about it, it's one part hippie. Well, it's probably two parts hippie. There's a lot of like hippie types out there, but then there's not. It's AT culture is kind of an enigma. It's, it's like everything belongs. You know, I've seen all types of people. I would see a, a trail hiking group or a tramily, which is a trail and family. That's what they call their groups, you know, be comprised of like an 18 year old who's just out of high school a couple of college students, and then a 65-year-old retiree. They would hike the trail together and, you know, stay in hotels and, and hang out. I mean, and what other subculture do you see that kind of group other than, like, you know, a family going to the Denny's for his, the grandfather's birthday? I mean, where else does that exist, you know? And it's, like I said, it's its own jargon. So I said it earlier with Nobo for northbound. Then there's Sobo, southbound. Some of the other words, there's a purist. So a purist is someone who does not deviate from the trail. They're, they can be kind of annoying if they're like the, there's the purist that, that they just do it for them. But then there's the purist who think that if you don't do it the right way, you're not a real through hiker. And so a purist would, let's say there's a road crossing on the trail to where you'd get a ride into town. So a super hardcore purist would mark where they stopped and got off the trail and they would make sure that they went right back 
to where they got off at and then continued hiking. They wouldn't miss a foot of the trail. Whereas, you know, someone who didn't really care, they might say, oh yeah, we're in that parking lot over there and it's a hundred feet up where they got off or maybe it's a mile up, you know, whatever. And they just be like, whatever, you know, I'm just here to hike. So they can be kind of annoying for the hardcore ones. If they're just doing it for themselves, you know, more power to them. I talked earlier about the big three. That's a, that's one of the uh, things we call ourselves hiker trash. I don't know if that, and I think in other trails, that's a thing. I think it started like somebody just yelled at some hikers walking on the side of the road and called them hiker trash. And it kind of just became a, you know, we commandeered their insult and we just call ourselves hiker trash. I just, you know, things like that. Yeah, it's, I've, heard of that on, I've heard of that on the PCT. Yes. Hiker trash. Yes. I'm sure that it goes on most of the long distance trails, the hiker trash thing. A lot of it bleeds over. And then we also have trail names, which that's a thing on other trails as well, I imagine. Or, I, you know, I know it's a thing on the PCT, but let's say I got my trail name on the AT. If I did the PCT, someone would probably, or I would probably introduce myself with my trail name. My girlfriend actually still calls me by my trail name. She doesn't like to call me Charles because it just doesn't feel right. What's your trail name? My trail name is Buffet. <laughs> I bet uh, there's a story there. There is. Your trail name, you could make your own up, but it's kind of like weird. If you like, because you know, the guy in school who says, call me Ace. And everyone's like, no one gave you that nickname. That's lame. So it's kind of like that with trail names. You can do it. Or you could say like, yeah, I got this name on like another trail, but I don't know. You're supposed to get, be named something. So you're supposed to just, you do something and like you slip on some water and someone calls you like, I don't know, slipper or something. I'm I'm bad at naming people, I guess. But what happened was, I got my trail name 10 minutes into my through hike because there's an orientation at Springer mountain. If you register and everything, and there's a, someone with the ATC who kind of gives you a rundown. He teaches you about leave no trace, how to hang a bear bag, things like that. And then at the end, he asks if there are any questions. He's like, does anyone want to know, uh, see how to tie a bear bag again? Want anyone want to know about the best buffets on the trail? You know, whatever. That was kind of a joke. And I raised my hand. I said, yeah, let's hear about those buffets, man. So he told me about them and I went to, I think I went to all of them and they were good recommendations. But this guy at one point said, Hey, at Amicalola state park where you start, there's like 50,000 stairs you have to climb before you actually get to the real AT. I wish someone had told me that, but the guy we'd stopped and it was like the first flight of stairs. And I was just like, <laughs> you know, just dying because I had my heavy pack with food and I was fat. And this guy was like, tapped me on the shoulder and he was like, Hey, I got a trail name for you, Mr. Buffet. Cause you asked that guy about buffets and I was just like, all right. And I didn't kind of like it at first. Cause you have to accept like, no, someone can't name you like butt face or something and be like, Oh, that's your name now. You're like, you have to yeah. accept it. So I didn't really accept it at first, but then later I did, I just dropped the mister and I just like just buffet. And that's how my name became buffet is I asked the man about buffets and I got it 10 minutes in, which I don't know if that's a record or not, but I think it's gotta be close. Charles, you mentioned you met your girlfriend, I think on day two. Which, believe it or not, we just talked to somebody else who met their partner on day two of the PCT, which is, you know, kind of surprising. But tell us about, you know, uh, finding love on the AT. Is is this a good good place for singles? I'd say so. Word travels fast on the AT, uh, and you don't want to do it anyway just because it's terrible. But it'll come if you're looking for it, I think. You just don't want to get that reputation of being creepy because it's like a game of telephone. Like, if something... If there was someone on the trail who was like behaving poorly, it travels fast because you'll pass like Phil coming this way to get water and you'll be like, yeah, you know, that guy was, was creepy. 
And then it, he tells someone and he just go. So you don't want to get that vibe. Like I was not looking for a relationship when I went on the AT. I had no intention of it. You know, I was fat. I was, uh, smelled terrible cause I was living in the woods. And you know, the last thing on my mind was finding a relationship. And at first it wasn't a relation. It was just a friendship at first, but we met on day two. She had started later in the day. So she didn't stay at the Springer mountain shelter. She stayed at the one back and that's almost where I stayed because I was so tired I almost stayed there. I probably would have met her the first night, but we met the second day and we just kind of, there was a huge group of us that kind of splintered off and then it became four of us. We called ourselves the slow patrol, but it would make, there's this one guy, he got mad that we called him ourselves that cause we were always catching up with him. And he was taking it as an insult that we were calling ourselves slow. But, um, so it was just a friendship for a while. It stayed a friendship for the most part on the trail, but we kind of both knew there was something there. And then after the trail, you know, you go from how relationships really can blossom on there is like, let's say you meet someone at a bowling alley and the relationship that exists within six months is a lot different than one on the trail. Because if you meet someone in your real life, you're not seeing them every day. You're not spending every single day with them for six months. You know, it's amplified because you're with that person all the time. If you're in a hotel, you're in the same room, you're having dinner with them every day. Friendships and relationships alike harden and blossom faster on the AT. And I think that's why you see a lot of relationships like that, because it's such a hard environment to be in. It's very intense. So I'm sure there's lots of people who think about doing a through hike, and uh, they might be surprised at how much it costs. Some might think it's going to cost nothing. Other people might think it's, you know, they're used to going on vacations that cost one or 2000 bucks a week. So, you know, after doing the AT, what, what should people expect for kind of a regular, regular through hike in your experience in terms of how much they should budget? Budget as much as you can, because the more money you have, the less you have to worry about and the more you can enjoy things like hotels you know, some people, a lot of people would take a trip to DC or New York because you're pretty close along the way. That's something I got to stay in New York because Lifesavers, she, her dad lived there. So we got to hang out with there for a while, but not to get too off topic, they say to budget a dollar a mile of the AT, but I don't think that's right. I spent about almost $7,000, but I was not as frugal as a lot of people. Some people legitimately can do it for $2,000. Some people have done it with nothing. It's just depending on how much you have to spend. You know, I knew a guy who we'd go by town and we would see him with the shirt off with a shovel or a pickaxe, just, you know, doing a day, you know, he was being a day laborer to pay for his through hike. Others, if you go all out, it's called platinum blazing. And that's if you just, you know, you don't have to worry about money, but I would say six to 10,000 is fits most people's budget. That's probably average. It's anywhere between six to 10,000. You can absolutely do it for less and you could spend 20 if you were really trying to, but your most expensive costs are going to be food and lodging. And you don't have to spend a single night in a hotel if you don't want to. You can stay in the bunkhouses of some uh, hostels. They've kind of gone up in price, but you can still find one for like 20 or 30 bucks. Some cost as much as a hotel does if you have two people. So it's better to just be in a private hotel for others, but you don't have to do that. You could just eat white rice and sleep in the shelters the whole time and do that day tea just fine. I just, that wouldn't have been enjoyable for me and it, it's not for most people, but yeah, six or 10, I think you're good in between that, those ranges. And so how do you feel like your perspective has changed since doing the AT? Well, I'm not lazy. 
this sounds terrible, but I don't like to work. And what I mean by that is I don't like to do a job. So I can go out and rustle cattle or something. It's not that I don't enjoy physical labor. I just, whatever this nine to five grind is that we've just, that we just live with, you do that till you're 65 and then they give you a gold watch and then you have your retirement money, but you don't have the energy because the best years of your life you spent clicking away on a keyboard. I just kind of realized I was never going to be happy doing that. And I'm not. And when I went on the AT, I didn't realize, I just felt that like, Oh, I'm just one of those guys who life's not that fun for, you know, I can't really find purpose in doing a job. But when I went on the AT, I found, I said, this is the lifestyle that that's for me. I realized that not knowing what day of the week it was, was, was awesome. Like, I don't care if it's Monday, it doesn't matter. I would, look at my phone and be like, Oh, it's Thursday. I thought it was like Tuesday. You know, you just don't have any sense of schedule. You don't have any sense of like in the back of your mind, you're like, Oh, the gas bill's coming up. Nope. You just know that there's a mountain ahead of you and you just got to climb it and get to the other side. And that's it. You know, just out of the, to be cliche, the rat race, the perspective it gave me is that not only did I find something that a lifestyle that makes me happy, I found that it's okay to not be in the rat race, you know, there's nothing wrong with not working away at a job and working your way up the ladder and getting the bigger house and the nicer car and keeping up with the Jones, as they say. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think society kind of looks down on alternative lifestyles like that, you know. Um, and I'm not sure why, because I, I don't I think that's the happiest I've ever been in my life was on the AT. Looking back at, at the time, there were a lot of times I was miserable and I wish I was in the office, but looking back now, it's just, I mean, that's where I need to be somewhere in the woods with my life on my back and thinking who cares what day it is. It doesn't matter. Every day is a weekend for me. That really resonated with me in terms of just the simplicity of, you know, there's just, your day is, you're just walking and sometimes you're talking, but you get, you know, who you're hiking with, or, and this is even just going for a week long backpack, but you can have some interesting conversations or just have time where you zone out. And I always seem to have great realizations when I'm not thinking almost, I'm like, Oh, Hey, this problem I've had, I've just, I've just solved it, but it's, there's no distractions. It's just, you're doing one thing that doesn't take a lot of effort. And it's just really, it's, I was thinking um, earlier this week, it's a bit like meditation almost because there's very little input and you're just kind of with yourself and just, you know, super comfortable, but you're breathing like, like crazy if you're going uphill, if you've got a heavy pack. But I think you described it really well, Charles, just there's something beautiful about being out uh, on a through hike or even just out on, you know, a few days backpacking, you almost get the same thing. Yeah. And Richard, I think you make a good point when you say it's almost like meditation. You know, I've, so, I've tried to sit there on the floor and meditate before, and I've just never been able to like, I don't know. I think it's just, you're right. If I'm just zoning out doing this and you just, your mind and you have these epiphanies and you figure out things from your past that you come to terms with. I mean, it is like meditation and it's really healthy for me, at least mentally it was. So this has been great, Charles. I really like the approach of comfort in doing a through hike because almost everyone I talk to, they're talking about grams and, you know, they're cutting their socks down and they're cutting all the straps off their backpack and they're spending, you know, thousands of dollars to save, you know, ounce here, a quarter ounce there. And I've always been a bit like you where it's nice to have some comfort while you're doing it. So I think that was great. Uh, I'm sure people might have some questions. How can they find you? Do you have a social media handles or, or other ways people can get in touch with you? 
Uh, I do. I'm only on Instagram. I don't have Facebook or uh, Twitter currently, but you can find me on Instagram at feeling Arkansas 79. And uh, uh, you should see me on there. I post every once in a while, not as much as uh, these days because I'm not around such beautiful mountains and living that lifestyle, but someday soon I'll be out there again and you can uh, follow me, follow my, my next adventure if you'd wish. Excellent. And I'll put that link in the show notes. Charles also wrote a really great article on 10 adventures that I encourage everyone to, uh, to have a read through kind of giving a bit more detail on, on his story on the Appalachian trail. I'll put that link in the show notes and thanks Charles. This was really great hearing your story about the AT and actually just made me want to get outside and for summer to be here and go hiking. Uh, how about you, Karen? Uh, yeah. Do you ever dream about doing a, a through hike? I've looked at it. I did some time on the John Muir trail, but nothing like that length of time. We only nine days and we had to plan for that one because we had to mail resupplies to ourselves for that one. Well, you've got some tips now if you want to plan your own through hike uh, to have a bit more comfort because I, I believe you're a bit of a comfort fan as well and you're not necessarily just focused on minimizing the weight. No, it's all about this whole experience. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures.